0: Ronan Farrow's explosive New York Times bestseller, Catch and Kill, is now in paperback and newly updated for 2020. Meticulous and devastating, raves the Associated Press, part all the president's men, part spy thriller. For more information, visit catchandkill.com. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So this is it the last podcast of the decade for us, but I wanted to end this podcast of the year with a topic that is incredibly important to me, uh, prison reform. It's something that I've become really steeped in over the past couple of years. We've had a few guests on, talked about it, done some reporting on this. My mother actually used to work in prisons in the United Kingdom, uh, and I had an experience early this year where I went to a prison and spent time with people Uh, Some of them who are in jail for life and some of them for a few years. And you get this impression that this is a system that is so broken, uh, it is kind of mind-boggling that we haven't fixed it yet. And there is a good side, though. It is an issue, prison reform, that is bipartisan. There are people in the White House who care about it. There are people on the Democratic side who care about it. There are people who are independents in the middle, everywhere. This is an issue people want to fix. My guest today is one of the people at the forefront of that. His name is Scott Budnick. He is formerly a big film producer who came up with the movie ideas for The Hangover uh, and created all those incredibly hilarious movies and then afterwards got really into working with prisoners, uh, working with governors around the country, trying to fix the prison issue as you're about to hear about. And now he has a couple of corporations and companies that he's working with where he is not only working on anti-recidivism, but he's also working on creating stories and films and TV shows uh, that are going to address topics that are in sore need of discussion. So without further ado, uh, I present Scott Budnick. It's a fascinating conversation. Listen all the way through. We're going to talk about a movie he has that's coming out uh, in a couple of days. And um, it's a really, really important topic. Uh, so have a great new year and here we go Thank you so much for joining us today. We have so many things to talk about um, I want to start with the movie that you just are it's coming out in January uh, Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in it and and then we're gonna go from there into a very deep dark hole of prison reform
1: and your past and so on and so yeah, forth. yeah um, well Just Mercy is a book that I I read and just blew my mind. And I've been knowing Brian Stevenson and his work at uh, the Equal Justice Initiative for the longest time. And um, we've known each other. We've spoken on panels together. And um, I've just, he's a hero of mine. And so when we were starting the new company um, and had raised the money to finance movies, um, this had just landed at Warner's uh, with Michael B. Jordan producing, and I had made all the hangover films at Warner's and had an office there for over six, seven years. Um, and, uh, we just went, went to them and got involved and came in as a co-financier and executive producer. And, um, it's the perfect first project for us because the mission of our company is not just to make, um, entertaining thought provoking films, but to also make an impact. And, um, because of my background in the criminal justice reform kind of movement community, it was just the perfect first film for us.
0: When you look at the impact these films have, um, it, you know, do you, is it, do you look at them? Are you like, okay, I, is it, it's entertainment first and then it's the impact or it's the impact energy. Like, is there a kind of a philosophy? You try it, to yeah.
1: To I mean, I, I don't think anyone wants to be fed vegetables or medicine. Um, so, straight entertainment first. Um, It has to be entertaining, um, hopefully driven by incredible actors uh, and stars and um, well done and award winning. But to me, beneath all of that, if you make a very entertaining, thought provoking film, then um, the impact can be there and you can can make a huge impact as long as you really run a campaign around it.
0: One of the things I found really fascinating is I think if you look at, over the last, you know, 30 years or so, and I think you said something along these lines too in one of your interviews in the past, you, the thing that has had the most impact when it kind of, you look at equal rights, um, especially around gays and lesbians, uh, is actually been television. Yeah. Um, and it's so fascinating that the things that are actually changing the culture are the cultural things in themselves. Do you think that, you know, the, the topic of the day, you know, even across party lines is prison reform, right? It's something that a lot of people are talking about. Inequality, of course, is a, another huge one, but but it's, you know, people are talking about it in the Trump administration, they're talking about it, not in the Trump administration. Do you think that, that this is the time for it to kind
1: of have some sort of impact? Yeah, I mean, it was like, when I was making all the Hangover films, uh, after the last Hangover movie, I went to a party and met one of the guys that was like deeply involved in the marriage equality political movement and when i asked him like what was a game changer and taking an issue that was incredibly divisive um and people were clinging to their bible saying this wasn't marriage and making it legal everywhere i asked him what a game-changing moment was and he looks at me and he says will and grace hmm. and ellen and glee and modern family i mean it was culture that softened people's hearts, they saw this gay couple on screen, they loved them, they thought they were cute, and they weren't as dug in in opposition after seeing a decade of of that show. And so I deeply think um, like, really empathetic storytelling can rewire people's brains, and um, I think it absolutely applies to criminal justice reform, because what I learned in five years of leaving the business and running a criminal justice nonprofit is, when it became human, right? Brian Stevenson always says, "Get proximate to human suffering." It's like when it, when people get proximate, when they see it as humans, as as a human issue, um, then their 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 hearts change, right? Then the way they vote changes. And anyone I would bring into prison, no matter if they were law enforcement, a victim of crime, someone from the right who is really tough on crime, when they sat down face to face with a human being that may have made a horrible mistake when they were 15 years old and committed murder or attempted murder or some violent crime when they were 15 years old or 16 years old and who are now in their 30s and are college graduates, um, are uh, in seminary programs, learning to be pastors and are completely changed, transformed people, those people 100% of the time changed the way they thought about the system. So being able to humanize folks within the system, I think just like with marriage equality, works with folks that have made tremendous mistakes in their lives but have redeemed themselves I've I've gone to I've done some prison work uh, and uh,
0: the thing I find so fascinating about spending time in, in different prisons is two things one is uh, one of the prisons I went to, uh, there was a kind of an introductory thing we did, and we took all of the volunteers that were there to help for the day, myself included, and uh, all of the prisoners, and we kind of stood across from each other, and we did the thing where you step back and forth across a line. To, yep. If you, you know, <clears throat> if you've uh, read X book, step forward. If you yeah. like, you know, ice cream, step forward, and, and so on. And the thing that was so astounding to me was the moment when the person organizing this said, if you were like tucked into bed at night and told I love you by your parents, step forward. And all of the prisoners stepped back except like one, and all of the volunteers stepped forward. And and I wonder the question I have is When and I think about that moment a lot um, because it seems like this. It's and then also like when you when we asked like you know who has kids who's who's in jail right now and and I think it was like three quarters of the men in there did. Can this? How do you break the cycle? Is the question? How do how do you change the cycle when that is clearly something that has impacted the people that are in there?
1: Well, I mean, I tell the young people I work with all the time that like you can change the entire trajectory of, of your family of the history of your family, just by you changing. And, and we see it all the time, right? Like so many of the folks we work with are the first in their family to go to college. Right. And then after that, all the nieces and nephews and children can't say I never knew someone in my community go to college. Right. And we've even had members of, uh, ARC, my organization become doctors and lawyers and engineers and architects and, Forever, all the kids in the community are like, I don't know a black architect. Uh, I don't know an architect from Compton. Uh, And now there's a black architect from Compton, right? And um, so, and then the most incredible thing is you then see it start happening, right? So for 200 years, this is the first person that graduates college. And then Four years later, you start to see all the sons and nieces and nephews and daughters and everyone start graduating from high school and going to college, and it just starts a ripple effect, right? Because it just it just needs one person to be that inspiration um, and to push the rest of the family. And so we've seen not just the um, investment in a person in the criminal justice system change them, but we've seen it change their entire families. When you look at some of the statistics around prisoners and,
0: and uh you know in america i mean it's it's astounding uh, especially when you look at the fact that you know 40% of prisoners or it's more than 40% i believe um are uh, you know african american and spanish make up 13% of society and so on and so forth is there anything you can do to change that from happening like a lot of that is a <clears throat> partially a, a result of the system within the police department right it's not a uh, there are all these things that are, that have been put in place over the years, over the decades that have led to that. Is there a way to kind of fix that massive, massive problem?
1: I mean, it's interesting. The conversation around race is, is always a tough conversation to have with the public. Um, cause a lot of people take it personal and believe that like you're blaming them, uh, that they're part of the problem. And Brian Stevenson has a way—the um, author of *Just Mercy* and who Michael B. Jordan plays in the film. Brian has a way of talking about race that where people don't feel like they're attacked. And if you go to his memorial or museum around slavery and lynching in Montgomery, Alabama, um, it tracks this incredible history of from slavery to mass incarceration, and you really get it. Um, and Brian always says that until we confront. Um, that, that Germans um, have confronted what they did during the Holocaust, and they openly talk about it. And there's m- museums and memorials there about the atrocities that were committed, but it's not something that we talk about in this country. Um, and, and that would
0: be confronting the fact that after slavery, we created these private prisons that essentially became... Slavery.
1: Yeah, and in prisons in general, not just the private prisons. And so and, and and the most incredible thing too is like I went to Germany to visit prisons. And um, because the prisoners are mostly white Europeans, and the Germans are white Europeans, they see the prisoners as their own, right? They're they're not prisoners, they're Germans, and we have to help them rehabilitate and when they come home, give them everything they can to reintegrate into society, because they see them as their own, right? They see them as Germans and part of German society. So there is no, you get out, you can't find a job because you have a felony on your record. Germans think we're crazy, that, that we would not hire someone getting out of prison. That's exactly who we should be hiring to reintegrate them back into society. But here in the United States, it's an other. It's, it's, they're, we're separating them. They're not part of our community, right? In the same trip to Germany, I went to Rwanda, where the population's black, and those that committed the genocide are black. And it's the same thing, they are Rwandans and we have to help them, uh, help themselves, get them home and give them everything they can. But here in the United States, even in California, like the first line of our penal code is the purpose of prison is punishment. And in Germany it's the purpose of prison is re-socialization and that's the disconnect. And I, after seeing it, I really believe it all has to do with race.
0: And so how do you fix that though? I mean the, you know, the, when you, this, I, you know, before we sat down to talk, I was looking through all the the statistics and the Wikipedia pages and all all of the stuff. And, and it seems like first we're the worst country in the world for this. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, And second it's, it is so systemic within society that the, the, this problem exists. How do you, how do you change that? I mean- Is, is I, it a movie that changes it? Is it like, how do
1: you change people's viewpoints? I think it's multiple things. Um, I think it's one, following kind of the Bryan Stevenson ideology of bringing people proximate, um, whether that is bringing them into a prison or having them introducing them to someone who once was incarcerated, who's now out in the community. It's telling stories in film and television, in documentaries and digital content that move their hearts and see that those who are in prison are very much like their own children. It's like when I walked in to a juvenile hall for my first time, I had no clue what to expect. And I sat down at a table with 10 kids that were facing life sentences, and I looked to a kid right next to me who had some tattoos, had a cool little Mohawk on his head, was 15 years old. And I said, how was your week? Are you doing okay? And he said, it was a really bad week. I just got sentenced to 300 years to life. Jesus. And he wasn't even, didn't even touch the gun. He stood next to a friend who shot the victim in the, in the rear end. And the victim was in and out of the hospital on a day. And for standing next to the person with a gun, he got 300 years to life. And as I talked to David, um, and he became David, right? He became a human being. He became a 15 year old kid. And... He had hopes and dreams of a 15-year-old kid. He had struggles beyond anything I could have imagined. He was a victim um, of all types of brutality as a child before he ever became a victimizer, before he ever joined a gang. And right away, within five minutes of talking to him, it wasn't, I wasn't talking to a gang member, I wasn't talking to a prisoner, I wasn't talking to an inmate, I wasn't talking to uh, someone who committed uh, attempted murder. I was talking to David. And David was no different than my own children. Um, and so I think that's it for everybody, right? As soon as you meet someone who's human and see that they're no different than your own children, they're no different than your own family, other than some of the struggles that they've been through. Um, I think that's when hearts and minds begin to open. When you, what, what was
0: the, and I'm sure you've told the story a million times, but just for our our listeners here, like what was the moment where everything changed for you when you started to kind of realize this was something that you wanted to have an impact on and, and you know, you've, you've done these amazing movies and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm,
1: I need to focus on this. Um, I think before that day I walked into juvenile hall in 2004 where I met David Um, about six years before that I had read an article in Rolling Stone magazine about four boys in Agora Hills that got life without parole sentences as teenagers for a marijuana robbery where they got into a fight and one person stabbed. someone to death in a backyard kind of fort clubhouse. And the three kids who never touched the knife got life without parole. And that just shocked me when I was in college and got involved in that case and reached out to the family. But it was actually moving out to LA and walking into that juvenile hall in 2004. And other than David, who had just got the 300 year to life sentence, meeting a kid named Adam. um, I remember that day, the topic was forgiveness. Um, and Adam looked like he was 11 and he was heading to prison for six years for a robbery. In my mind, I'm just like, this kid is going to get eaten alive in prison. And he stood up to read his paper that he wrote about forgiveness and he's hoping his mom forgives him and that he, will he ever be able to redeem himself with his mom? And his hands were shaking reading this paper. I'm like, this is a kid that's like scared to read it, his paper in public. And he's crying as he's reading this piece. And it was just like heartbreaking. And I just started teaching that class, um, every Saturday after that was called Inside Out Writers, an incredible creative writing class literally five minutes away from where we're doing this podcast in Juvenile Hall. And um, when Adam got out, I had uh, told Adam like, I'll help you find a job. And we were in, I think, pre-production on The Hangover. And Adam came down and I said, we can get you hired as an intern, $12 an hour. And Adam ended up showing up an hour early every day, out hustling everybody, attitude of gratitude. And at the end of it, um, I think it was our prop master came up to me and said like, this is the greatest kid I've ever hired. Like, I wanna take him onto our next film. Um, We'll get him into the union. And Adam's now like a union set dresser um, making I think $48 an hour. And he got his four brothers into the union through this incredible program called Hollywood CPR at West LA College. So all five of the brothers are in the union probably making a total of about $800,000 a year. And I think they just bought their family a house. So it lifted the entire family out of poverty. And that's when I realized that we all have a platform where we can really do very little things. Send an email, it could change someone's life, right? Um, and that was the first time where I really kind of sought an action and now we've just scaled that tremendously. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
2: As you begin planning your next trip, take a look at Cambria Hotels. With more than 50 locations in top cities across the United States, there's a hotel wherever you're headed for either business or pleasure. From Los Angeles to New York City, you'll find a Cambria Hotel with approachable indulgences that make travel better and help you be your best. Whether you want a pre-packaged grab-and-go option, or you want to explore the locally inspired menu with a perfectly paired local craft beer, or if you want to take in the outdoors on a breathtaking rooftop, or simply relax while listening to your favorite podcast or music in your spa-inspired bathroom with Bluetooth mirrors, Cambria is thoughtfully designed with you, the modern traveler, in mind. When you're ready to get back on the road— Cambria is ready to welcome you, putting you first with enhanced cleanliness practices and social distancing. And exclusive features like Cambria's contactless concierge service, where you can request anything you need from extra towels to food at the bar or checkout, all from your smartphone. Plus, each hotel offers a marketplace with drinks, snacks, and prepackaged grab-and-go options. See how little indulgences can make a big difference when you book your next day at choicehotels.com. Slash Cambria.
0: One of the, uh, it's interesting when you look at the Trump administration. There's a, uh, there are some people that kind of make fun of the fact that Kim Kardashian and Kanye West are like the, 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 the uh, what's the word? They, they are the ones that are essentially. Going to Trump to say, you should free this person or that person from jail, or something like that. And in some respects, it is kind of ludicrous that it's them. But in mm-hmm. other respects, it's great that it's actually part of the conversation. Jared Kushner, who mm-hmm. I don't have think very highly of, actually does care about this issue for personal reasons. His father, of course, was in jail. Is, th- is this administration doing anything that is different from others to kind of change what's going on with incarceration? Or... Is it just a few people that are getting out because of a few celebrities?
1: Um, well, first, I would say that um, I pretty much disagree with virtually everything that Donald Trump does, um, but uh, I give Kim props for kind of going in there and working to get Alice Marie Johnson out and then some others and using her platform Um to change lives, and, and I've I've gotten to know Alice really well, and Alice is so thankful for Kim, and they're really really close friends. And I well, can never you just knew tell
0: that story real quick, so for listeners, so they know oh, who these folks are.
1: Yeah, so Kim Kim Kardashian went to President Trump and um, uh, asked him to free this grandmother who had been in prison for over a decade for like nonviolent drug offense um and president trump ad- ended up doing it it was just a, one person um, but that's one life right and um i'll say this about kim uh, i got a random text in new york um that said like hey this is kim kardashian west uh, someone gave me your number like i'd like to learn about criminal justice reform and it was one of the craziest texts i've ever gotten and i called her And said, do you want to meet me down at a women's prison Um, in a couple days? I'm kind of, I don't know, a little bit of a test maybe. And she ended up canceling her shoot and coming two hours away from her house, down to a women's prison with one security, no entourage, nothing. And went into this prison, sat down with a dozen women facing life, not facing life sentences, serving life sentences. um, And sat at the table and said, and they were obviously out of their minds that they were seeing Kim sit down with them. And she said, "Listen, I'm not here to talk. I don't know this. I just helped get one person out and it made me so happy. Please tell me your stories. Please let me learn from you. I don't know I know what I don't know." And she was so humble. She was so kind to these women. She and since then we've visited multiple prisons together she's in law school. There is nothing she won't do. Um, even if it's not great for her brand or her image to help someone to be of service. And I honestly went full spectrum. Like I think the world of her is she, um, you know, it seems one of
0: the things that I think is so fascinating is, is you, when you take someone to see this, their viewpoint changes. Um, have you ever had anyone whose viewpoint hasn't changed
1: or is it no no ways, no one, no one, which is most, most incredible. Um, there was a woman when we were trying to pass legislation in California, whose husband was murdered by two juveniles and in a very brutal crime. And we're trying to pass a law to say that children can change, right? And that children should not be thrown away forever. And that even children that do a horrible thing later in life, should get the chance to redeem themselves. And we're the only country in the world that would sentence a child to die in prison. No other country but the United States would have life without parole sentences for juveniles. And I ended up meeting um, Maggie Elvie, whose husband Ross owned a gun store and two kids came in to rob him his gun store and hit him over the head with a pipe and killed him. And Maggie found her husband in a pile of his own blood dead, the love of her life an incredible man, and she's an incredible woman. And I asked Maggie to come down to Juvenile Hall um, and meet my kids, all who were in Juvenile Hall for violent crime, some of them murder. And it was tough for Maggie to to get the energy to do it. And she ended up coming down. She sat at this table with these dozen kids and she started telling her story and all of them hung their heads. A few of them started crying. And in the middle of her story, a couple of the kids got up and stood behind her and put their hands on her shoulders as she's telling the story about losing Ross. And at the end of it, she's hugging all of these kids. She's then following up with me and saying, like, how's Luis doing? Like, how's Kendrick doing? And um, it touched her. And I wouldn't say that it changed her. She still was really angry. Um at the boys who took away the love of her life. But I think it softened her, and I think it opened her mind to some possibilities that the kids can change. And if Maggie, after that experience, can come in and be affected like that, anyone can. And I've never seen anyone, and I've taken hundreds if not thousands of people into prisons, I've never seen anyone come out and not be supportive of, of, of smart reform. If, have you ever, Changed
0: your mind in the opposite direction, believing someone should get out and then meeting the, you know, finding more about their story or something or meeting the person that was affected, the Mackey, um, and
1: thought, actually, they shouldn't? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am not an abolitionist. I mean, there's some advocates that believe we should abolish prisons. Like, I, I believe that we actually do a huge disservice to reform when we release someone without... Who A, who's not ready, B, who has not made the changes, C, where there's not resources there to help someone combat their addiction. Um, Right now, we just release folks out of prison with $200 for their bus ticket and nothing. And their option is to either be homeless uh, or to go back to the same environment that may have produced the problem in the first place. And that's not a recipe for success. And if we wanna continue with positive reforms, Um, a, we need to figure out all the mechanisms to make, to give people all the tools while inside prison to transform their lives, to get them ready for opportunity, to train them for industry, um, and to all the therapy and all the healing that they need, um, to deal with all the trauma they experienced when they were young. Um, and then when they walk out the door, continue to hold their hand, I mean, a lot of my my guys walk out of prison, they went in at 15, they're coming out at 40. They don't know how to use a smartphone. They've never been to Starbucks. Um, the things that we take for granted they've never experienced. So just those few weeks of handholding to get them ready to take everything that they've learned and just go crush is so necessary. So I really believe when I meet somebody who is not ready, who may still be an active addict while in prison, who is not doing the work, who doesn't want to change, and where there won't be resources for them or they don't want to take advantage of resources, that's not someone I want walking out of prison. Um, And so I think uh, reforms that are pointed at recognizing personal growth and transformation, I can right now give you a list of 10,000 people in California prisons, and I'm sure there's tens of thousands more that have shown that they are no longer a danger, that they've done their time, that don't need to be spending another 5 10 15 20 25 years in prison those are the folks who I believe we should be looking at
0: when you said earlier that we are the only country in the world that takes our children and incarcerates them for life why how did that come about why is why are we the only country that does that
1: is it fear well, one I, I feel like we just love to punish in this country and two um, in the '90s, um, around when some of the first school shootings were happening, there was a researcher—forget which university—but came up with a theory um, uh, of this youth super predator theory, saying that there's a different breed of children being born these days, where they're being born as super predators. I remember this. I remember this on the news. Super predators. Super, super predators. predators. <laughs> um, that's calling a child a super predator, and um all the laws including in California i mean all the laws in in most states just got draconian where we started instituting life without parole basically telling children you have no capacity to change you are rotten this one act that you did defines this was during entire- the Clinton administration too right it may have been uh, cuz he started the three strikes rule and it was like i'm not i'm not sure exactly i think it was 91 um but so that may have been during Clinton, but um, uh, it, it the, the theory has now been completely debunked, and the researcher that started it has come out and said he was wrong. Um, but but it takes so much to reverse course after all of these laws across the country were put in place, many of which cannot just be. Reversed by a simple majority vote of the legislature. Most of it needs to go back to the people or a two-thirds vote of the legislature So we are still dealing with rolling back some of that super predator rhetoric that is now kind of ingrained our policies
0: the other thing that America does that is unlike any other country uh, is the incarceration rates for people for especially for minor drug incidences, but for drugs and what's interesting when you look at the research is a lot of states have kind of taken it on themselves or even cities. New York um, has kind of really stopped arresting people for, for drug charges. They, You know, the, it's, it's like an unwritten rule. It's not a new law. And um, it, do you think that there is a – and there's hundreds, just tens of thousands of people in prisons across the country uh, for drug uses – is that something that we finally have come to the realization is not the right answer or is it just
1: that certain places have and others I mean, haven't? I, I, I almost feel like the nonviolent drug offender. I mean, that's like the most lowest hanging fruit like that. No matter what political persuasion you come from, that is the most obvious, right? There should not be a crack to powder cocaine disparity um, where folks like me and you um, get probation and, and, and folks that are, smoking crack um, Are going to prison for 45 years to life or whatever it may be I mean, that's just pure racism like there's no other way to cut it and, and the fact that President Obama was able to Reduce it to like eight to one was great. But why is it even eight to one? Why is it not equal? I mean, we know who the powder cocaine users are and what they look like and we know Who the crack cocaine users are and what they look like and that is just like there's no way to get around the fact that that's just pure Racism. Racism. Um, but to me, it's like I've never, I don't work with nonviolent drug offenders. I work with young people that commit serious and violent crimes. And that's where, I, what I think the next frontier is because like mercy and grace are not just for the nonviolent drug offender. Um, I've seen tens of thousands of people who committed violent crimes join gangs as young people. Um, go to prison and change their lives, Um, come out with four year university um, degrees and become pastors and firefighters and saving communities and just doing incredible things. Um, And I think that's what we need to start talking about. I mean, in, in, in Just Mercy and Brian's book, I mean, he talks about what we do to children. He talks about, yes, he is a child in the book that got life without parole. He's a client in the book that got raped in an adult facility. Why would we ever put a young person, a child in an adult prison? Like, is that really uh, how we feel like the problems, their problems are going to get solved? Um, And then obviously the film talks about an innocent man on death row that. And we know the statistics, the statistics about how many innocent people are sitting in prison and yeah, how many innocent people are slated to be executed. And the fact that we can just still keep a death penalty that is so biased, that has so many innocent people lined up. Um, and in, in Just Mercy, I mean, Walter McMillan sat on death row for three decades before Brian was able to show that he did not murder this white woman. And um, the fact that anyone has to spend 30 years in prison for something they didn't do, the fact that any child has to be told that um, their life is meaningless, and this one act that they did in their most traumatized moment defines everything, uh, their entire existence. The fact that Alice Marie Johnson gets sent to prison for decades for delivering a package that had drugs um, rather than being home with her grandchildren is really a shame on this country. And and it's not, again, it's not partisan, right? Like when we were developing what the impact campaign for Just Mercy looked like, we were at George Soros's foundation and sitting inside George Soros's foundation were, was Mark Holden, the chief counsel for the Koch brothers and prison fellowship, which is the faith-based initiative within prisons and right on crime, which is at the Texas Public Policy Foundation that Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist are associated with. This is not a partisan issue. This is an everyone issue. Everyone wants a fair justice system. But
0: it's a, this is the part that I get confused about. It is an everyone issue, and yet the system is so difficult to change. And, that, you know, when you talk about, like, folks on death row and the story of Just Mercy and so on, there's, you know, I think about I, all these stories that I've read about – people who are on death row and how it is literally like the, the most narrow system to try to change. It's, it is the ultimate punishment and yet the hardest one to actually convince people to turn back on. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, you think about the story of um, uh, in Texas, um, the guy who was put to death um, uh, trial by fire, Cameron Todd Willingham. Yeah. And like Rick Perry is like, wouldn't even
1: look at the document. You know, it's the the the, the proof that he didn't do it. Well, look at what just happened with Rodney Reed in Texas as well, right? Like it took it took every Republican and Democrat coming together to, to convince Governor Perry to stay his execution. Um, so it's it's ten years ago or fifteen years ago. It's Cameron Todd Willingham, and today it's Rodney Reed. I mean, I, I honestly, the the campaign of fear that the opposition likes to run. Obviously, there is people on death row that have done horrible things and there are people in death row that people should be scared of. Um, but there are also people in death row that are innocent and there's also people in death row that were not the shooters in a horrible crime and we're just there and commuting people's sentences to life in prison from the death penalty. Um, doesn't jeopardize public safety, but the folks who are entrenched against this, many of them who have financial gain and livelihoods that would go down the drain if mass incarceration ended, um, the only tool in the toolbox is to talk about the most heinous crimes and scare people.
0: Do you think that there is, one of the things I find the most frustrating when I talk about this stuff is like thinking about Rick Perry, um, who I think is just a, quite frankly, an awful human being uh, who could give two shits about the people who are in prison and if they did it or not. He just cares about Rick Perry. And um, when you look at the system, like, you know, Cameron from uh, Texas, uh, where people, you know, stood on the stand and lied and said something that they were told to say by a sheriff or by a DA or something like that. And there's, every story has that. And there's never any repercussion for those folks. Does... Does that piss you off as much as it pisses me off? Yeah. Or I,
1: I, I, I Obviously, those that we trust to protect our communities and our law enforcement um, have the highest of standards to behave ethically, even higher than the, the normal person. And so when someone behaves badly and when system actors don't act in the interest of justice... Um, horrible things happen. I mean, you see it in Just Mercy, right? Like Jamie Foxx plays Walter McMillan, who was there because they couldn't solve this case. And Walter McMillan happened to cheat on his wife with a white woman. And they decided to get one jailhouse informant, a sheriff and a DA decided to get one jailhouse informant to say that Walter did it. Um, and line up the fact that a white woman was murdered and Walter had cheated on his wife with a white woman, and send him days away to his death before Brian Stevenson walked in the door and, e- and EJI walked in the door. Um that in that sheriff, one of the last kind of cards on the screen in the film, that sheriff was reelected six times after Walter McMillan was freed.
0: That's um, the part that that's the part that makes me want to put my fist through a wall. It's like that does the, does, does, do people just don't give a shit? Do they not believe it? Like, what is the thing that says that that sheriff shouldn't be the one sitting in jail? Well, who's, that? Ma-
1: who's making the decision to prosecute a police officer for committing perjury? The DA. They're, they're on the same team, right? They are, every case that goes to trial, it's a DA and investigating officer from law enforcement that are working together. So there has been an enormous reluctance To prosecute um, police officers, sheriffs, and even DAs for committing perjury. And um, I believe that the winds of change are beginning to come. You're starting to see prosecutors get held accountable. Elected DAs get held accountable for not um, prosecuting people that commit crimes. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of... Um, DAs who are considered progressive DAs now winning around the country because they ran on a platform that this elected DA that's been in office for 40 years is not prosecuting a police officer that shot someone running away from them in the back. Um, That are not, not prosecuting their own prosecutors that have been proven to commit perjury on the stand. And so you see... All of these district attorneys who run on these progressive platforms winning in huge cities like Philadelphia and Chicago, um, and all over the and I think in Houston and, and and even places where you don't think they can win, because people want to punch a hole in the wall just like you do. And again, when you talk to people, no matter the political spectrum, and you show them that the people that we have trusted to ensure that justice is served are the ones acting unethically. I don't care if you're the most conservative person when I when they see the facts and they see that this justice system is so stacked against the poor and people of color and it's not being done fairly, that pisses everybody off.
0: That was another question I had was around the poor. When you look at local jails, you know, 690,000 or something like that uh, people in local jails and uh, 80% or so uh, are stuck there for 10 months at a time because they can't afford the the bail. Is there a system in place that's trying to fix that so that the people that get arrested for these minor, minor offenses and put in local jails aren't stuck there for
1: a year? I mean, bail is simply a tax on the poor and the fact that if I committed the same crime as someone that was poor, that I would be bailed out that night because I had the financial resources and I would be sleeping in my own bed and going to court in my own clothes, facing whatever charges I'm facing. Yet that person um, who is poor has to sit in a jail cell with a public defender and go to court every day shackled in a prison uniform is egregious. Um, And we in California just passed a law um, drastically reducing cash bail um, and eliminating it in many situations. But there's now a ballot measure that the bail bonds agents, because their livelihood was going away, have put on the ballot for November 2020 to restore cash bail. And they have a lot of money and a lot of momentum, um, what is to try to, undo, to try what's to undo the this. What's measure called? Um, I'm not sure what their ballot measure is <clears throat> called. Um, but they're trying to undo a law that, that the legislature in California passed, um, simply, uh, for financial reasons.
0: When you look at the recidivism rates in the U S it's what's 50% now in for, mm-hmm. for in prisons. Um, is is that changing, or is it, uh, is it stagnant? And and what is the solution to that? Because that is also a very American problem, right? It is like, as you said earlier, you get you you, you get you leave jail, they give you two hundred bucks, you've got nowhere to go. You can either be homeless or you go back to the streets where you
1: where you got arrested from. Um, it's you know you, you I I think that is why conservatives have been rallying around this. I mean, in California it costs about $70,000 to lock up one adult. It costs $230,000 a year to lock up one kid. Wow. You could send them to Harvard for five years for what it would take to lock them up for one year in California. And our juvenile recidivism rate in California is 70%. And if I was a CEO of a business that created a $230,000 product that failed seven out of 10 times, I'd be fired and my company would be out of business. But this is what we've done for a hundred years. And the solution is actually fairly simple. I mean, the evidence, the data shows us what the solution is. I mean, while they're incarcerated, give them the healing tools, the vocational programs, the GEDs, the college programs, the mentors. Um, When they get out, um, give them opportunities to go into sober living programs, transitional housing programs, not have to go right back to the same neighborhood that they grew up in, where a lot of their same friends or same people are still doing what they're doing. Um, giving them a pathway into jobs and careers. Um, there's so many businesses now that have changed their HR policies that are now hiring people, uh, coming out of prison. Are there specific
0: um, businesses that are doing better than others, or specific industries you mentioned?
1: Yeah, we, we've, we've placed, um, at ARC, we've placed um, hundreds of people uh, into the building trades, the unions. Um, we have a, a couple dozen of our members building the Rams Stadium right now, making a huge living wage um, and a career for the rest of their lives. Um, we started uh, in partnership with uh, the governor of California and Cal Fire, And the Department of Corrections, we started the first firefighting program uh, for folks that are coming out of uh, prisons and jails and juvenile halls to become Cal Fire firefighters forever. We would have them in fire camps while they were incarcerated, and they would fight the wildfires, making a dollar an hour and risking their lives and being heroes of their communities while they're locked up. But when they got out, because there's a felony on their record, they could not become firefighters. And that was just ridiculous. And so now we've started a new program um, where we're putting them into really well-paid firefighting careers. Um, Probably about 70% of our members who are formerly incarcerated are in colleges and universities. Um, We've placed a lot of folks into the film and television unions, um, just like Adam, who I told you about earlier. Um, And these, what I've found is Folks that are getting these opportunities, and a lot of businesses and CEOs say the same thing, that they are the hardest working because they want it more. They are the most grateful. They are showing up early and staying late uh, to put in as much work as the com- for the company as possible. Um, I have found them to be absolutely uh, some, of the, some of the best um, workers and leaders. Um, and so, I mean, it's obvious what folks need when they come home. There just needs to be political will to do it.
0: Last couple of questions and then we'll let you wrap up. Um, Do you think that, you know, when you look at your slate of projects that you have coming up, are there certain things that that you think will be more impactful uh, or are there certain things that are targeted towards a certain audience? It's, you know, of course certain people watch will and grace and certain people didn't you yeah. know how do you how do you kind of reach them all and 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 how do you approach that as you pick on take on new projects
1: well, even though just mercy was in the world of criminal justice reform um we're looking at doing films and television shows around all issues of inequality so whether it's uh economic inequality and poverty and foster care and broken education systems whether it's immigration immigrants refugees Um, inequality for women and girls, people struggling with mental health and addiction. Um, We're going to be covering all of those different issues. Um, We just announced last week um, that we partnered with uh, Ben Affleck and Martin Scorsese on uh, King Leopold's ghost, uh, which chronicles King Leopold II of Belgium, who colonized the Congo and murdered over 10 million Africans uh, in, in what was like the first human rights atrocity. Um, And the the heroes um, that led a movement uh, to expose that. And um, that's obviously very different than Just Mercy. It's a much more kind of global story. Um, We're doing uh, a small $3 million film, um, a beautiful immigration story, which is like a Nigerian mother-son story. Um, We are uh, about to come aboard a huge film at Warner Brothers that is very much like a pursuit of happiness um, uh, in tone. And so um again, leading with commercial uh films that are incredibly entertaining, but beneath the surface has can can really move people to 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 do better, act better, vote better, et cetera.
0: Uh last question. I'm sure that you have instances when you're working in this field where, you know, there are days where nothing goes right, where it's the same, you know, you 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 leave a prison or you hear hear about a case or that you've worked on where you know the kid doesn't get out or doesn't uh, what is the story that you think about the most that uh, that like keeps you going
1: with this I think it is both celebrating the successes and then seeing the injustices that are still happening and knowing that like we can't stop Um, I had a student named Prophet Walker who went to prison for six years, um, and in prison earned his first two years of college and then got accepted into the Loyola Marymount School of Science and Engineering, got out, became an engineer, built the Ace Hotel in downtown LA and has gone on to an absolutely huge career. Like that lifts me up, gives me joy. And every time those stories happen, which now is every week, um, that gives me the energy to keep going. Um, when I go into a prison, um, Last night, we did this enormous uh, event with the Sacramento Kings coming in to play basketball with the men inside Folsom Prison. And it was just like an incredible event. But to meet a man last night that has been in uh, since the age of 14 and spent 25 years in solitary confinement and is now out on a regular prison yard and has gone 10 years without even getting a write-up, the fact that that man is still sitting in prison um, and is at a low level prison and is d- not a danger to anybody, um but is still there, That keeps me going, right? That is an injustice that that needs to be fixed. So I think it's both, right? It's celebrating the incredible successes and seeing folks that never believed in themselves, never loved themselves, begin to see the incredible power um, and joy and love. And then also seeing those injustices, that if we're not continuously shining a light on, then they'll continue doing these unbelievably unjust sentences. And I think those are—it's the balance of both things that keep me going.
0: Can you just tell listeners where they can, how they can help, where they can find all of your projects
1: and so on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, keep looking out for One Community and uh, in, in the film and television programs that we're going to producing. If you want to learn more about the. Uh, impact campaign and just mercy and getting involved in in helping reform your local criminal justice system go to representjustice.org. Um, and if you want to see what we did at ARC in California and some of the great stuff happening there, that's ARC ca.org
0: Great. Thank you so much for taking the time today When the movie comes out when
1: January 10th, I'm very excited. To see yes. It. Just mercy. All right, let's go
0: Thanks to my guest today, Scott Budnick. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsor this week, Figs. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. And guess what, guys? Ladies dogs, cats, chimpanzees, anyone who's listening still, I'll see you next decade.